Our text for today comes from Exodus 20, verses 1 through 21. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord, am your God, and uh, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals or any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet sound and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and, Moses, and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but you do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that, you may, so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Very good work. You may be seated. <laughs> all right. All right. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you. It's good to be here. We're begin as Ashley said, we're beginning a new series on the Ten Commandments this morning. Uh, so, if you're good at counting, you will realize that that is, that is a ten-week sermon series, which is a lot, I know, but we also have a lot happening in the next, uh, the next probably two months. We have a lot of different uh, things happening, Back to School Sunday and some other stuff. So, I figured we needed a sermon series that we could kind of sprinkle in around some of the other things that we'll be doing at the, at, as we kick off the new uh, school year. So, this is what it is. So, uh, throughout the next probably hmm, three-ish months, we'll cover all the Ten Commandments. So, uh, when you show up, it, you'll know exactly what we're doing because we'll be t covering one of the Ten Commandments. Uh, and the Ten Commandments are given to us in Exodus 20, that passage that Ashley just read to you. Who's familiar with the Ten Commandments? Just raise your hand for me for a moment. You're familiar with the Ten Commandments. How many of you, when you actually hear the whole thing read, you're like, oh, that's what it says? <laughs> Some people, maybe. Uh, those, that is the Ten Commandments. And I think we are all slightly, in our culture, familiar with what the Ten Commandments are, aren't we? We, we know about them vaguely. I, none of us could probably give them in order from top to bottom, if we were pressed, some of us might be able to. Richard's nodding, like, I can do it. Just give, it, give me an opportunity. Um, but we know vaguely about them, right? And even in culture, even somebody who doesn't regularly attend church, the Ten Commandments are familiar. I just typed the Ten Commandments of into Google, and this is what came up. But this is what came up. The Ten Commandments of God, the Ten Commandments of love, the Ten Commandments of dating, 
the Ten Commandments of Computer Ethics, the Ten Commandments of Marriage. I think that is like don't sneeze and then use somebody else's keyboard, just for the record. Uh, <laughs> the Ten Commandments of Logic, the Ten Commandments of Working in a Hostile Environment, which I think you will, most of us probably need, except for anybody who works at the church. Uh, so you can look that one up. The, and uh, this is kind of how we understand the Ten Commandments, right? Uh, Dave Letterman has a top ten list. We're familiar with this list of ten things or this list of ten rules that need to be followed. Maybe you grew up in a family where your mother stenciled on the wall the Ten Commandments of your household, and it was like, always close the door, wipe your shoes, take the dog out when it's, you know, I don't know what they were. Be nice to each other. We're, we're used to these lists of ten rules, right? And that's how we interact with them. I had, a, I had a high school teacher who kind of rewrote the Ten Commandments and put them on the wall at, of Algebra 2, which is the highest I ever got in algebra, if you're, if you're wondering, which is not very high. Um, uh, and put them on, the, put them on his wall as, a, as the rules of the classroom. And I think this is how we're familiar with the Ten Commandments. We engage with the Ten Commandments. When we think about them, when we look at them, we engage with them as ten laws or kind of external rules that when, play, when, our, when they're placed in front of us, we are expected to follow, right? These are the laws. These are the rules. These are the, these are the uh, guidelines or principles that we're supposed to do when we read them because they're important, right? And and this is how we interact with them. We interact with them far more like a, like a law governing the speed limit than we do, like I think, how they were actually meant to be interacted with. Because, and you'd be forgiven in thinking that this is the case, they are called a commandment, right? And a commandment is a pretty authoritative word, right? Authoritarian word, actually. If you're commanded to do something, you're, whether, you, whether you think it's a good thing or not, you are supposed to do it, right? Commandments are the types of things that parents give children, right? This is when you look at your kid and you say, you need to do this. You do not have any other option, right? This is, what a, this is how we engage with a commandment. But I think when we look at that, the Ten Commandments as just a set of rules that kind of come down to us, we can, be, um, we can, we can kind of misunderstand the way in which the commandments were meant and are meant in the scriptures to be understood. Because the Ten Commandments are not actually just ten rules that appeared out of nowhere that, that Israel was then asked to follow. It's not like Moses was just going about his daily business, mowing the lawn or taking out the trash, when suddenly two stone tablets with ten laws came like screaming out of the sky and ended up in his front yard, right? This is not what happened. The the Ten Commandments were received within the context of a story. Uh, and that story is the story that surrounds the, the people of Israel, and particularly the people of Israel uh, leaving the state of slavery that they were in in Egypt. The story that surrounds the giving of the Ten Commandments is so important because it gives color to, to these commandments, and it tells us a lot about how we are supposed to understand them, how, how we're supposed to engage with them as people. So if you're going to see clearly what the Ten Commandments are, and you're going to see clearly how they are to be understood, then you actually have to take a step back and look at the story as a whole. Because, as I've said, the Ten Commandments were not given 
to Israel in a vacuum in Exodus chapter 20. There is a whole number of things that were happening in and around that that, uh, that make it important and help us to understand what they are. So the story really is about Moses and the Israelites leaving their slavery in Egypt. But if you're actually going to understand what the Ten Commandments really are, you have to go a little bit further back in the story than that. To really get a grasp on what's happening in Exodus 20, you have to, to go kind of to the beginning of Genesis and understand what God was doing when he called a guy named Abraham in the book of Genesis. There, God made a promise to Abraham that he would be, that Abraham would be the head of a really big family, right? And that through this big family, God is going to bless the whole world. This is the promise that God makes to Abraham. And then the story of the scriptures track down from Abraham through Abraham's four sons until a series of events, until a series of events happens and Abraham's family end up in Egypt. And eventually, after a period of time in Egypt, they end up as slaves in Egypt, not the way the story was expected to go, right? If God calls out to Abraham and says, I'm going to make you a great nation and you are going to bless the whole world. And then four or five generations later, well, probably more than that, but uh, a number of generations later, th that family that God said he would bless ends up in slavery. And so in their slavery, Abraham's family, this number of people called the Hebrew people or the Israelite people, they do a very smart thing. They cry out in their slavery to the God of their father Abraham. This God who, they, who, who called Abraham out uh, from amongst the people and set him apart to be the head of a great family. So they call out to this God. And the scriptures tell us that God hears that cry. He actually hears it and then puts into, plan, puts into place a plan to deliver them out of slavery by raising up a leader. And that leader is Moses. Moses. Now, actually, in the story, Moses is not the deliverer of the people. Very often you will hear uh, in the scriptures uh, a phrase that just Moses the deliverer. But Moses was never intended to be seen as the primary deliverer. Because actually, in the story, God is the one who delivers. God is the deliverer of the people. It is Moses that is God's mouthpiece, a person for whom and through whom God can work to deliver his people. So Moses is called by God, has a lot of stuff happen in his life. You can read the story if it's interesting to you, and eventually goes to the Pharaoh in Israel, and he comes before Pharaoh, and he tells him, release the Hebrew people from slavery. And Pharaoh does exactly what you would expect a Pharaoh to do. He's reluctant to let these people go, and he's reluctant to, to let these people go because, like every other global power that's ever existed, much of Egypt's wealth and success was built on the backs of slaves. And this, their society, as it was, couldn't really function without these slaves. But eventually, God proves himself powerful because God proves that he is more powerful that this one God, Israel's God, this one God is more powerful than the entire pantheon of Egypt's God. And he does this by sending 10 plagues. And each of these 10 plagues, we don't have time to go into it now, but each of these 10, pla 10 plagues represents a way in which God is superior over one of Egypt's gods. And so Pharaoh gets the clue. He realizes that this God, Israel's God, is the most powerful God, and I better listen to him. 
And so he tells Moses, what? He says, you get to go. You get to go. And the people of Israel pack up in a big parade. They take all, all kinds of jewels and uh, wealth with them, and they leave. Except Pharaoh has a change of heart, doesn't he? And, he? and he marshals his chariots, and he takes off after them. But God does, again, another miracle uh, in the parting of the Red Sea. And he opens up the Red Sea, and the people of Israel walk through it, and some bad stuff happens to, to the Egyptians. And the Israelites get on the other side of the Red Sea. They're in this place at the other side of the Red Sea. And they're just standing there in the desert, having left Egypt, having left the only place that they had ever known for generations. And they're looking at each other. And they're going, so what do we do now? What do we do now? We're in the desert. There's no food. And we don't even have a home. We're just a roving band of people in the desert. It's kind of like that little kid who runs away from home and gets about four hours out and then realizes that he doesn't have any place to sleep and he's quite hungry. So he just heads back home, right? This is kind of where Israel's at at this point. But on the other side of the Red Sea, in the middle of the desert, God begins in that place to work with Israel. To, to reveal to them why he called them out of slavery in the first place. God has delivered Israel and gives them this law. And he gives them this law not because he wants them to live up to it so that they will, they will be, so that he can do things for them. Because remember, he's already done things for them. But rather, he gives them this law because he loves them. Because he loves them. And he wants them to represent to all the other peoples that they come in contact with what this God is like. This people who belong to this God are, are actually, are supposed to be like this. And so God gives them the law for that reason. So from the perspective of the story, the law, and specifically the Ten Commandments, are not arbitrary external rules. They're actually a kind of stamp or a hallmark of what God's people uh, should look like. God says, you are my people. I have already selected you, but here's what you should look like now that you are my chosen people, now that I have selected you out, now that I have rescued you, now that I have called you, this is what you should look like. The Old Testament scholar Peter Eanes puts it this way. He says, the law is not what Israel does to prove itself worthy, but the law is God's gift to the Israelites. And by obeying the law and living according to God's standards in the ancient world, they would be a holy nation. They would be different. You see, the law, from the perspective of the scriptures and from the perspective of the story of God's interactions with the Israelites, the law is a gift of God's grace. And it's a gift of grace because they have already been delivered out of slavery, right? He did not say to Israel when they were back in slavery in Egypt, if you follow these 10 rules, I might get you out of this mess right? That's not what he said. Rather, the Ten Commandments are given to an already redeemed people. God had already rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. He had already chosen Moses to be their deliverer. And at the time when they are given the Ten Commandments, they are on the other side of the Red Sea with Egypt in the rearview mirror, and they are at this pivotal point in their journey with God. 
they're trying to determine their identity, who they are going to be now that they have left Egypt. They've left their bondage, they've left their chains, they've left their slavery behind, and now they have to figure out what they are going to be as a people. Their slavery had come to define them as a people, right? For generations, it was a significant part of who they were, and they had been in bondage for generations. It was actually all that they knew And now they are free, and they have to discover for the first time what it is like to be a free people. How do they live as a free people? And in the same way, many of us, I think, are in a similar spot. Maybe we have recently walked out of some kind of bondage or slavery. Maybe we're trying to get free of something. Maybe you're in a new phase of life and you're feeling a little discombobulated. Maybe you have recently begun to make Jesus a more central part of your life, but in many ways you are still defined by the bondage and slavery that you left behind because it still is who you are in a sense. But God has rescued you just like he's rescued Israel. They were a redeemed people. They were no longer in Egypt, but they had this mindset of being in slavery in Egypt, even though they were on the other side of the Red Sea, even though God had already done all of these things, they, are, they still had this perspective. And the temptation that Israel had and the temptation that many of us face when we're in a kind of space between who we were and who we will be is to turn back towards a bondage or to turn back towards something we've left behind and say, it was better for me back in Egypt. It was better for me back there because the, the moving forward into the future is a little uncertain. I, d- I don't know what's actually going to happen. I know what life is like back there. I know exactly what I'm going to get. I know, I know where I'm going to get my next meal, and I know who I'm going to be, and I, and I know exactly what's going to happen. In this sense, bondage looks more attractive than freedom because of fear of the unknown. And my encouragement to you today is that in that in-between space, what some have called a liminal space, God wants to give you a new identity. He wants to give us an all a new identity, not defined by slavery, not defined by bondage, but defined by our deliverance. You see, the space between is when the most change happens in our lives. Not because Uh, Not because it's hard, it is hard, but because in that space between, we get to define new realities, new identities for ourselves, and we we can choose to lean into the discomfort of being in a space between and be formed in the way that God would have us to be formed, or we can choose to go and to lean back on that old thing. And what people often shrink back from is the discomfort of being in a between space, when in reality, what they need to do is lean into that and define for themselves a new right, no reality, a new identity, a new paradigm. Maybe the bondage or the, that thing that you've left behind in your past feels comfortable and familiar, and so comfor- I'll choose comfortable and familiar every time over strange and unknown. But God wants to give you a new identity in Jesus. He wants to give us all a new identity in Jesus. And God needs to take us through periods of uncomfortability. He needs to take us into spaces between things in order to get us to where we want to go. And if we don't lean into that space, if we don't lean into this, the, the kind of new identity that God is calling Egypt in, or Israel into, as he calls them out of Egypt, 
if we don't have that, that journey in our own hearts take place, we'll never be as free as God has proclaimed that we are. Because we will stick in a mindset that leaves us broken, hurting, in bondage, in fear, and in pain. The gap that you need to traverse to a new identity is an uncomfortable gap. But if you can manage that space in the space between, you can step into freedom. You can step into a new identity. It's not always easy, and Israel shows us that that is not an easy thing. But God's grace is available for them. It was available for them, and it is available for you to have a vision of what God wants you to be in the future and to walk that out despite the uncomfortability of this space between. Slavery at times looked far more attractive to Israel than freedom, and it can be to us as well. But God wants you to step into freedom. He really and truly does. So God gives Israel these laws, right? He gives them these ten laws as a gracious provision to them to help them in that space between, to help them step out of this place where they were and to define for themselves a new identity. They knew what they were like in, in Egypt, and now they had to figure out what they were going to be as God takes them into the wilderness, right? How are we supposed to be a people? How are we supposed to function? How are we supposed to act? What are we supposed to be now that we're God's rescued people? And he's apparently got us on this mission, but, but we don't know where we're going. And God gives them these Ten Commandments as a kind of gracious act to show them how to live as his people. It's like on top of the Ten Commandments, it should say, this is how free people live. And then they can follow it. And so, the very first commandment, and this is the first commandment we'll get in today, that God gives them in that place is, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. And this one makes sense, I think, to us, right? God has just delivered them out of slavery. They have just watched with their eyeballs God do these amazing things. And you would think that this would be a pretty easy one to follow, wouldn't you? right? They, if you had just, like, walked through a parted sea and seen a, seriously, and seen a river turned to blood and had to kick thousands of frogs out of your bed, apparently, I, I don't understand why they chose these, but this is what we chose. You would think that this would be an easy one to follow, right? You have just seen these miraculous things occur, but it turned out to be quite difficult for these people, actually, because in the ancient world, most cultures had a ton of gods. They had a ton of gods. Egypt had a pantheon of gods. And God knew that his people's greatest temptation would not necessarily be to stop worshiping him, but to incorporate the worship, the worship of God in with other gods in their kind of overall religious life. It's a religious practice called syncretism. Have you ever heard that word, syncretism? It's the practice of kind of bringing other gods in under uh, the big God. They weren't going to walk away from Yahweh. They weren't going to walk away from Abraham's God, but they were going to add in other gods. And they, actually, Israel ended up doing this. We have, a, we have a picture up here. This is actually a picture from, uh, the, uh, I think, well before Jesus' day. But uh, 
this isn't as far back as this, but it's probably about seven or 800 years BC before Christ. And this is actually a picture. The tall guy in the middle is Yahweh, is, is Israel's God. And, the, and his partner right next to him there is Asherah, is Asherah. If you, read the, if you read the New Testament, you read a lot about Asherah poles and things of that nature. These other, the two bulls, and there's another God playing a harp up there in the corner. That's, there's other stuff going on there. But the point of this is that we have, we have actual archaeological evidence that, that Israel did this, that they brought other gods into the worship of Yahweh. And we'll talk about next week. They also made a lot of graven images like this. Um, but uh, they, 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 they struggled with this. Uh, I had an Old Testament professor in school who actually, if you've read the, New, the Old Testament, you'll be familiar with the name Baal or Baal. It's the god, wow, it's really going out there, isn't it? Uh, he was the god of the Canaanites, and, and very often, whoa, the god of the Canaanites. <laughs> and, uh, and he was the god of the Canaanites, and Israel struggled to keep the worship of Baal away from the worship of Yahweh, and uh, I had an Old Testament professor that actually had a little statue that was a, that was a amalgamation of Baal and Yahweh together. He, he had dug it up in the Middle East, and he brought it to class. Israel struggled with this. They were always incorporating the worship of God in with the worship of the gods in their surrounding nation. And the reason God says the number one thing you need to do, Israel, is have no other gods before me, is because God wants them to accurately represent to the, to the other people around them what God is like, right? And if they're incorporating the worship of other gods and they're incorporating other moral and religious systems into their moral and religious system, they're going to have a real hard time communicating clearly to the world about what God is actually like, aren't they? But Israel struggles with this over and over and over again. They, they struggle to make clear who their God actually is because they're constantly worshiping these other gods alongside their God. In order to be a people that represent what God is like in the world accurately, they had to kick out these other gods, and they were simply not able to do that. But the first commandment tells them from the very outset, this is the one God. There is no other God, and no other God need have pride of place in your life. And I used to read this. I used to read this first commandment and go, yeah, no problem. I, at my church... It's just Jesus. It's just the one Christian God. We got it squared away. There's not other gods. We're not singing. We're not singing. We sing no songs about Baal this morning. We've got the first. It's good, Emma, that you didn't do that. Um, but uh, if, and we come to church and we think, okay, got it, right? We, they might have struggled with that in their day. But I don't struggle with that in my day. I just worship this one God, and he's my God, and we're good to go, right? So bring on the other nine, right? Bring on the other nine commandments, and we'll see how good I'm doing. But the problem with that is that it's, I don't think it's, easy, it's as easy as that. I don't think it's as easy as that. Because if you really look at the gods that were worshipped in ancient societies, and particularly the gods that are worshipped uh, other, than, other than God, other than Abraham's God in the Old Testament, gods like Asherah and Baal and Marduk and Molech. These are all great names, by the way, if you want to you name your kid. Um, they were all representative gods. They all represented something. 
they, they, were, they represented fertility, or they represented uh, the harvest, or they represented wealth, or they represented uh, power even. Worshiping these gods, in a sense, in the ancient world was just a way that uh, the ancient people personified the, the worship of those other things, like sex, like prosperity, like power. This is just how they did it. You see, the issue is the old gods haven't changed. They've just rebranded. We just don't worship them like that anymore but we still most certainly worship them. Just a cursory glance at our culture will give you a pretty clear picture of this. A pretty clear one, I think. How many times have you seen a family of siblings split apart when it's time to divvy up the inheritance and wondered, ah, we don't worship money anymore, right? Uh, the, in, globally, the, the pornography industry is worth $97 million. $97 million, about, or billion, sorry, not million, billion. About $12 billion of that coming from uh, the United States alone. Porn sites receive more regular traffic than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined in a month. This is from the Huffington Post. So we might not have statues of Diana on every... Uh, on every street corner, but I think we still worship sex, in a sense, don't we? How often have we seen a co-worker get promoted, and as soon as they get promoted, we say things like, oop, John's on a little power trip today, right? Or, uh, or, or Jim just let that power go to his head, right? And we... And we, in our, in our own position, when we get a little power and we get a little authority, or we think in our own minds, like, well, if I was in charge, right? If I was in charge. But we don't worship power anymore, do we? We still worship these gods. We still worship these gods. We just don't do it in the way that the ancient Israelites were tempted to do it. These gods have just become a little harder to spot because we don't make statues to them anymore. It, and it has just become a little bit more culturally acceptable to worship these gods, hasn't, isn't it? You know, Jesus himself addresses this kind of duality that we struggle with of worshiping God as God and incorporating the worship of these other gods into our lives. He addresses this in Matthew 6, verses 24. Specifically here, uh, Jesus is addressing money, which is probably our most common God in the West. But this is what he says. He says, no one can serve two masters. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Tim, if you come up. And really, that about squares the circle, doesn't it? You cannot serve two masters. The truth is, and Jesus says it quite clearly, and Jesus tries to, uh, and God tries to make it as clear to the Israelites as possible. There is simply not enough room in the human heart for more than one God. You will be mastered by something. Something will take your affection and your energy your time 
something will have that pride of place in your heart. It will. And the, the some things that are these old gods of money and power, they will eat you alive. They will eat you alive. If you worship money and possessions and you're always chasing after the, those things, then the second something goes wrong in your finances, your whole world falls apart. Right? If you're chasing uh, the gods of sexual allure or, or, or youth, aging will not be a pretty thing for you. Right? And you'll die a thousand deaths before you actually die. If you worship power, you will live in this ever-expanding cycle of wanting power and being abused and then falling down and wanting power and being abused and then falling down. And you'll be like, um, you'll be like the guy pushing the rock up the hill every day. And and guess what? You will leave, you will leave devastation in your wake. The truth of the matter is, is that none of these gods, none of these other gods can can handle the weight of your worship. They can't. They will eat you alive. And Jesus comes to us and God comes to us and says, the only thing that will help your life flourish is if you can be ruthless in your life, rooting out the other gods and, bring, and, and choosing actively to worship this one God, this one God. And by so doing, you will free yourself from, the, uh, from being encumbered from being attached to all of these other things, these, uh, these other gods that will ultimately let you down, these other gods that will ultimately uh, ruin your life. But if you lean into the, to the first commandment, and if you have no other gods other than God, if you center your, your life and your devotion on the person of Jesus, you, you will never be let down. And you will not be not be encumbered and you will not be held down by this false worship, but rather you will be freed up to live the life that God would always has had for you to live. And Israel struggled with this. We struggle with this time and time again. But the truth of the matter is, is that the worship of other gods alongside God, notice, not just the worship of other gods alone, but the worship of other gods alongside God is, I think, probably the, the most pressing issue in any of our lives. So the question is, how do, how, do we then, how do we then root out those other gods in our lives? How do I stop wanting a bigger house? <laughs> or, you know, this is, it's an interesting question. How do I stop wanting to be a bajillionaire? That's a number, by the way. Right? How do, how do, I, how do I stop worshiping these things that are just in me to worship, right? How do I stop my heart from going to these places that they naturally want to go, that I know are no good for me? How do I do it? Do I just will myself to do it? Do I just do I just make myself do it? How do we how do we stop worshiping gods other than God? How do we do it? Well, I think I think the answer is both more difficult and simpler than we want it to be. That doesn't make sense, but it will in a second. It's more difficult because the doing of that process is just hard. Because the truth of the matter is we are like Israel. We, we, want, we want those things that God tells us that we 
step of actually rooting out the things in our lives that aren't for our good is hard because we don't want to do that naturally. It's far harder than we think it is. It's far harder than we than, than we you would think it is. But here's the way in which it's easier. The way in which it's easier, the way we root out these things in our lives is simply to love God more. Simply to love God more. And the way we love God more is to put ourselves in the position to love God more. To put ourselves in the position to love God more. To see over and over and over again who God really is. To, to have his actual heart and his actual life and his actual being represented accurately to us. And to look at God as God is and be drawn to that reality. And as we're drawn in love to that reality, we're able to, um, we're able to wean ourselves off of these other gods. And one of the clearest places, one of the clearest places we see the full representation of who God is, is on the cross. Jesus' death and resurrection reveal to us perfectly the heart of God. And as we look to Jesus on the cross, we see accurately who God is. And as we lean into those realities, it becomes far easier for us to wean ourselves off these other idols, these other gods. And luckily for us, Jesus actually gives us a practice that helps us to look at the cross, the practice of communion. The reason we're given this physical practice is because we need physical practices, as we talked about a couple weeks ago. We need to be reminded over and over and over again about what this God actually looks like. Because this God is not a God who simply requires things of us, but rather would lay down his life for us. And if you learn to love of God like that, it is far easier to wean yourself off of these other gods that keep you encumbered, broken, hurting, dysfunctional. And so this morning, we're going to observe communion together. We're going to come to the table. And as we come to the table this morning, all I ask, all I ask is that you be open to the possibility, open to, to the possibility that as you receive communion this morning, God is acting in that moment to show you his love, that he sh he's acting in that moment to reveal to you a little bit more of what he is actually like so that you can see and know the heart of God for you so that you can uh, find the, the strength with the help of the Holy Spirit to wean yourself off these other gods and to learn to love Jesus more. All right? So Paul tells us in, in 1 Corinthians that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. And after supper, in the same way, Jesus took the cup and said, this is the cup of the new covenant Grace Community, we practice an open communion, which means that you don't have to be a member of our church to receive with us. All we ask is that if you receive communion with us, uh, you want to follow Jesus with your life. And so this morning, uh, I'm going to pray, and then we will open the table, and we'll open ourselves to the possibility that 
maybe God wants to reveal his love to us a little bit more so that we can wean ourselves off these other idols. All right, let's pray. Father, we love you. And we ask this morning that you would show us your love. That as we take this bread and this cup, that we would see that your son Jesus, that we would see and be impacted by his sacrifice for us on the cross, that, that we would get a fresh vision of how much God loves us, that he would go to these depths, that he would go to this extent to communicate his love for us. Father, would you show us uh, your love? Would we feel it this morning? And would we be a people who uh, would be actively attempting to root out of our lives allegiances to other gods, to other things that take our allegiance and take our affection and take our love away from you? Would you help us to do that this morning in the name of Jesus? Amen and amen. The table is open. You're free to receive at the table or at your, or at your seat. Uh, and you can have a time of reflection and then uh,